0: man, you may be seated. You may be seated as uh, you may have discovered by now, Dexter's not here. Uh, he is preaching in Cedar Lake today, so uh, it's too late to leave. Uh, by the time you get there, church will be over, so you uh, might as well stay here. It's been tough sledding through Romans. Um, not a bunch of feel-good sermons, and today is not one either. Um, But just hang in there, try not to go to sleep, and every now and then just give me a thumbs up because you probably won't be saying amen, (laughs) and just let me know you're still uh, with me. Dear Lord, handle your business in the name of Jesus, amen. As many of you already know, I am a fan of superheroes. Spider-Man is my all-time favorite, followed by Black Panther. Blade, Batman, the Hulk, Thor, Wolverine, and yes, Wonder Woman, the Linda Carter version. Eh, James Bond. <laughs> because of my affinity for comic books and animated superheroes, I tend to watch everything that I can find featuring superheroes on television. On Monday nights, I watch Supergirl. On Tuesday nights, I watch Flash and Black Lightning. And on Thursday nights, I watch a show called Arrow. <laughs> amen, I got an amen. That's the only one I'm getting the whole sermon. Arrow is a TV show loosely based on the DC Universe's Green Arrow character. The TV show Arrow features Billionaire playboy Oliver Queen, who after five years of being stranded on the hostile Mandarin Pacific Island of Lian Yu, returns home to Star City to become a bow and arrow wielding hooded vigilante who sets out to right the wrongs of his father who died during a shipwreck and saves Star City aided by his vigilante friends Oliver Queen or the Green or the Arrow seeks to bring justice to everyone who as he puts it failed his city he sets out to do the right thing even if it means doing some wrong things In the sixth season of Arrow, we find Oliver Queen, who is the mayor of Star City by day and the hooded vigilante Arrow by night in a perplexing predicament, having been impeached from public office because in his role as mayor, he fired the police captain and district attorney after finding out they were working for a crime lord by the name of Ricardo Diaz. Ricardo Diaz, who has killed his way into the leadership of one of the most notorious and powerful criminal organizations, is so bent on getting rid of Oliver Queen, a.k.a. the Arrow, that he has him kidnapped and then challenges him to -to hand-to-hand combat with the loser of the bout having to leave Star City. Well, Queen gets the best of Diaz, but dishonorable Diaz takes out a knife and stabs him. To make matters worse for Queen, Diaz, who has the whole police force and political power structure on his payroll, has Queen arrested for the crime of vigilanteism and tried for secretly being the arrow. To make matters even worse for Queen, not only is he arrested, Diaz has his corrupt cronies ensure that he goes to trial quickly. In episode 21 of Arrow season 6, it's entitled Docket Number 11, Docket Number 11, <laughs> In this episode, several witnesses are called at Oliver's trial to testify about the identity of the arrow including some of the other vigilantes that fought by his side in episodes past. One vigilante, Renee Ramirez, a.k.a. Wild Dog, was prepared to perjure himself when Diaz walks into the courtroom with Wild Dog's daughter and in essence forces him to ensure her safety by outing Oliver and testifying that yes, he is indeed the arrow. Oliver himself is called to the stand and lies under oath and declares that he is not guilty because he is not the arrow. While Oliver is testifying, someone dressed as the arrow crashes through the courtroom skylight. This arrow replacement testifies that he is the arrow and not Oliver Queen and is subsequently taken into custody. With this new revelation, it looked like Oliver Queen was off the hook. So his lawyer moves for a dismissal, but the judge says no to the motion for dismissal and sends the verdict to the jury. With all that transpired, surely the jury would come back with a verdict of innocent. Surely Queen would walk away scot-free. Surely the decision would be in his favor. The jury goes out to deliberate. After the deliberation, court is called back into session. The judge asks the jury foreman to please publish the verdict. The foreman then announces, in the matter of the people versus Oliver Queen, on all 26 counts of the indictment, we find the defendant guilty. Despite evidence that suggested that he was innocent, the verdict was that Oliver Queen was guilty. Now, you may be asking yourself, what in the world does that, he's shaking his head, yeah, uh you're right. What in the world does that have to do with Romans 3, 9 through 20? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, today's text is tailored to teach us that we are all like Oliver Queen. We are all hood-wearing, arrow-wielding, masked vigilantes. We believe ourselves to be good people in general, and those of us who have trusted Christ believe that in and of ourselves we some good-look Christians. Most of us think that we are all right even though now and then we do a little wrong. Many of us think that we got it all together. Many of us have been sitting in the pews listening to this series and and, and saying to themselves, those folks in Paul's day were messed up. I'm glad I'm not one of those people in Romans chapter 118 through 38. But Paul is here to tell us this morning that when you get to Romans 3.9, we find all of humankind, which includes you and I, in the same precarious predicament that Oliver Queen, a.k.a. the Arrow, was in. We've all been arrested. We've all gone to trial. And we've all been found guilty. So today I would like to tag this text with the title, Docket Number Romans 3, 920. <laughs> the verdict, Guilty. If you would uh, turn to your Bibles or turn them on or do whatever you do, go into your memory. Uh, Abel remembers more Scripture than anybody I ever seen in my life, so he probably just knows what this says. Uh, To Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. I'll read it out loud, and you read it there and you see. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, got to say that word right. The venom of asps (laughs) is under their lips. If I mess up, y'all just forgive me. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being shall be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Take a drink because here we go. When we turn our attention to the text, We find Paul using the language of a court case to clarify the fact that everyone stands guilty before God. Look at your neighbor and say, you're guilty too. That's about 10 of y'all said it. Since chapter chapter 1, Paul has been pointing out the sins, issues of segments of people. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 30, he talks about the guilt of the heathen. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, he talks about the guilt of the hypocrite. In chapter 2, verse 17 through Romans 3, 8, he talks about the guilt of the Hebrews. And right here in chapter 9, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he's about to talk about the guilt of all humanity. Picture, if you will, standing in the courtroom, the prosecuting attorney is that tent maker from Tarsus, the man that met the master on the Damascus Road, that gospel globetrotter, the mighty missionary with incredible credentials, the Apostle Paul. The judge is none other than El Shaddai, the God Almighty, El Elyon, the Most High God, El Olam, the Everlasting God, the God who is perfectly just and perfectly holy and whose standard is that same uh, perfection. The defendant, when we look to the side of the courtroom, where the defendant and their lawyer stands, we see all of humanity. Which means right smack dab in the middle of this passage is both you and I. Everyone, including Paul himself, is standing in the courtroom listening to the charges being read at our preliminary arraignment. You see, during the arraignment, the charges against the defendant are read to inform the defendant of the charges against them. In verse 9, he gives the summary of the charge and then lists them more in detailed fashion in verses 10 through 18. The summary of the charge is this. All are under sin. Verse 9 says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that. What's that next word? All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All. Now, normally we crack a joke right here. And we say we did an etymological study on the word all, and it came back to mean all. I actually really did look it up this time. And the word all in Greek is pas. It means each, every, any, the whole, everyone, everyone, each person, every person, any person, the whole person, all are under sin. What does Paul mean? All? Both Jews and Greeks are under sin? John Piper breaks it down like this. The whole section of the letter up through this text is to show that all people everywhere are under the power of sin and cannot get right with God apart from the gift of righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. We see it here in the summary statement of Romans 3, 9, Jews and Greeks, that means everybody, because Greeks stood for what many people considered to be the best of non-Jews. All people are under sin, under the power of sin, not just sinning occasionally, but enslaved to sin. One of the most important truths to hold up in the world is that all human beings, even though created in God's image, are corrupted by the power of sin. We are not morally good by nature. We are morally bad by nature. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says, we are all by nature children of wrath. The attitudes, thoughts, and actions that deserve the wrath of God come from us by nature. We don't just do sins. We are sinful. We are under sin. Sin is like a master or a king. It reigns over us and in us. It doesn't coerce us to to do what we don't want to do. It makes us want to do what we ought not do. Well, maybe you don't believe Piper. Paul calls himself to the stand and he testifies against him own self his own self listen to what he says in Romans 7:14 through 19 uh, pay attention cuz this always kind of confuses me too <laughs> for we know that the law is spiritual but i am of the flesh listen sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me let me read that again for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what's right but not the ability to carry it out for I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing and if we be honest this morning that ain't just Paul's testimony. It's ours too. How many times have you said something you know you shouldn't have said? You tried to hold your peace. You tried to bite your tongue. You, your tongue. You said, ooh, I want to go in right now, but I'm not mm, I'm gonna try not to. And the next thing you know, you was letting somebody have it. How many times have you done something that you knew God wouldn't be pleased with? But no matter how hard you tried to hold yourself back, no matter how hard your conscience was beating you up, you gave in and did it anyway. Our natural inclination is disobedience to God and sinfulness. We are sinners by nature. In theological terms, we call this depravity. While often misunderstood, the doctrine of depravity teaches that as a result of the fall of man in Genesis 3, 6, every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, and our flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. It penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin. Isaiah says in uh, Isaiah 64 and 6, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. The Bible teaches that we sin because we are sinners By nature. Now, some of y'all looking like, man, what are you talking about? Let me put it in layman's terms. Everybody, you and I included, is jacked up. Everybody, you and I included, is flagrantly foul. Everybody, you and I included, is toe up from the flow up. Everybody, you and I included, is busted, disgusted, and can't be trusted. Y'all with me now? All are under sin. In verse 9, we see the summary of the charges. In the next eight verses, he breaks the charges down. In verses 10 through 12, he charges all mankind with a heinous heart. In 13 and 14, he charges us with a foul mouth. In 15 through 17, we see awful actions. And then finally, in verse, I'm sorry, 16 and 17, we see awful actions. And then finally, in verse 18, we see a failure to fear the Lord. Let's dive in. Last week, Pastor Dex uh, taught you about Paul's use of what's called the diatribe. I'm not going to try to re-explain it, but I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message and see what that's all about. This week, Paul uses something called a shiraz. A shiraz literally means a string of pearls. In the same way a jeweler would string pearls together to make a beautiful necklace, rabbis would string together proof texts. Old Testament scriptures to make a beautiful argument. It begins as it is written, which you Bible readers know is a very familiar New Testament phrase that refers to the Old Testament. And to add to that fact, this text is written in what is called the perfect tense in Greek. That perfect tense uh, identifies something that happened in times past with continuing effect and continuing significance. So as we read verse 10 and on, we could look at it this way. It has been written and it continues to be true that man has a heinous heart. It has been written and continues to be true that we're all guilty of a foul mouth. It has been written and continues to to be true that we all are guilty of awful actions. It has been written and continues to be true that we have failed to fear the Lord. Let's look at the charges. Charge number one, the heinous heart. In verses 10 through 12, Paul is quoting Psalms 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul uses the testimony of David to support his argument that all are guilty of having a heinous heart. Look at what he says. He says that we are unrighteous. Verse 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one is innocent. No one is faultless. No one is guiltless. There is no one who is as he ought to be. There is no one who keeps the commands of God. There is no one who is approved of or acceptable to God. Perfect holiness is God's standard, and none of us can achieve achieve it by any means or effort on our own part. By nature, we are incapable of doing what is right in God's sight. By nature, we are unable to stand righteous before God. What we are experts at and what we can do is what's right in our own eyes. The book of Judges in chapter 17 and 21 highlights one of the darkest times in Israel's history. During those times, the book of Judges says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But lest we shake our heads in disgust at Israel's past, let's consider our present just for a moment. We live in a time just like they did, where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. We live in an era where the soundtrack of society is the song originally performed by the Izzy Brothers and remade into a hip-hop classic by salt and Pepper that says, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. I can't tell you who to sock it to. We live in an era of the gospel according to Oprah Winfrey. Now, don't throw no tomatoes at me because I know some of y'all love Oprah, but we live in an era of the gospel of Oprah Winfrey, the gospel that says, live your own truth. Do what you think is right. Brothers and sisters, Paul stopped by this morning to tell you that when uh, it comes to God, what you and I think is wrong. And our truth is a lie. Paul just told us last week in the Q&A with Dexter, let God be true, though everyone We're a liar. We are all unrighteous. But not only are we unrighteous, we are unreasonable. Verse 11 says, no one understands. Not only is all humanity unrighteous by nature, we are unreasonable by nature. No one understands, no one comprehends, no one can put it together. This word understand actually means to set or bring together hostile combatants. By nature, you may not like to hear it, we may not like to hear it, but by nature, we are enemies of God. And therefore, by nature, we are hostile toward God. In Romans 5.10, Paul says it himself. He says, we were enemies of God. In Colossians 1.21, he tells us that prior to Christ's work of reconciling man to God, we were alienated from God and enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. We're unrighteous, unreasonable. And then this one got me. We are uninterested. Verse 11 says, listen, no one seeks for God. No one Seeks for God. Now, this kind of gets us because a lot of us believers uh, believe that we sought God out. We think we found him. Some of us have even testified uh, uh, about the day they found the Lord. There's even a song that says, I cried and I cried. I cried all night long. I cried and I cried until I found the Lord. But none of this is true because Paul says we're all guilty of being uninterested in finding God. No one seeks for God. See, none of us in here found God because none of us in here were looking for him. None of us in here found God because he wasn't hiding, nor was he lost. (laughs) Trying to figure out how. Um, Omnipresent God needs to be found. Anyway. We were the ones lost. Jesus had to seek us out. Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And and let me tell you something. Jesus loves lost folks. I wish some of us was a little more like Jesus and love lost folks. We like to shake our heads at lost, Mm -mm -mm, shameful God. But Jesus loves lost folks. In Luke 15, Jesus paints a picture of just how much he loves finding sinners like you and me. He says a shepherd is willing to leave 99 sheep in open country just to go find one that went astray. It says after he finds the one that went astray, he grabs it, he takes it back to the crib, he calls up all his homies, and they throw a party. He says in the same way, he and all of heaven gets geeked up and then turns up more over one sinner that repents than 99 righteous folks. Jesus loves seeking the lost. No one has sought God out. No one was looking for him. No one was checking for him. No one wanted to get with him. Ain't nobody trying to holler at him. No one was swiping right. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all got that Tinder app on your phone right now. Now, for those of y'all who fronting like you don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> on a dating uh, app Tinder, you can search profiles of people looking for a date. If you find someone attractive, you swipe right. If you find uh, someone unattractive, you swipe left. Is that right? I was trying to catch some of y'all love. Y'all, y'all smart. Y'all on it today? I was, I was. Well, y'all gonna tell y'all selves like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> By nature, when God's photo showed up on the Tinder app installed on our wicked hearts, we swipe left because God is unattractive to the heinous heart. But I gotta pause here parenthetically. And cut from our court case to a commercial break to say thank god that when i wasn't checking for him he was checking for me thank god that when i wasn't feeling him he was feeling me thank god when i swipe left on him he swiped right on me romans 5 8 proves it it says god commended his love toward us Check this out. This wrecks me every time. God commends his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinning, while we were still turning up, while we were still footloose and fancy free, like my pastor used to say, while we was wilding out, while we was foul, he died for us. He swiped right. Those of us who find ourselves as a part of the in crowd, meaning the in Christ's crowd are in him because he initiated the relationship. God made the first move. Jesus said in John six forty four no man no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That word that 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 draws him, that word draw means to be drawn by your inward power. It means to impel, not impale, impel. I never had heard of this word. I looked it up. It means to urge or drive forward by the exertion of strong internal moral pressure to get us to himself. God impels us to come to him by making Christ and the gospel so attractive that we have to seek him while he may be found. My homeboy Dex would say it this way. God works within our hearts to make Christ so Beautiful, y'all know how you do, beautiful <laughs> to us that as Amos says, we seek the Lord and live. He makes Christ so lovely that we see him like we never had before, and we want to lock him down. Some of you may not believe this, and I still have a hard time believing this myself, but Nicole actually initiated a our relationship, she actually made the first move. I know you like, there's no way possible, but that is actually the truth, and you can verify it if you ask her and she tells the truth. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I knew her, and I thought very highly of her. I'm actually the one who shared the gospel with her, amen, but I had never thought about being in a relationship with her. Well, one day I was sitting in my office, and she came and handed me a letter, then left. Now, everything the letter said can be classified under nunya, meaning nunya business. But I will share that it said she was feeling me and just needed to get it off her chest. Well, after I read the letter, I started thinking, like, yo, shorty feeling me? That's exactly how I went. Yo, shorty feeling. <laughs> then I started going down through my mental checklist for what I wanted in a wife. And she checked every box. And on top of all that, she was fine too. I'm sorry, I, this was a Ken moment. I, was, I thought to myself, let me go lock shorty down. Before I got that letter from Nicole, I wasn't even looking at her that way i wasn't seeking her out but when she made known her desire to be in relationship with me i was impelled to be in relationship with her well that's how we are with god we know about him but we weren't thinking about being in relationship with him by nature you weren't you weren't feeling god But then God delivered some good news to us. That good news is called the gospel. In the gospel, God lets us know just how much he loves us. He lets us know that even though we are lost sinners, he's feeling us. The letter came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and all my brothers and sisters, let me tell you, he checks every box. You looking for someone to love you unconditionally with an everlasting love? He checks the box. You looking for someone who is faithful, Uh uh-huh, he checks the box. You looking for someone who will never leave nor forsake you, yep, he checks the box. You looking for someone who will provide for you, yes, he checks the box. You looking for someone who will comfort you in the midst of your darkest hour, Jesus checks every box. Through the gospel, he made known his desire to be in relationship with us. So if you are in here today and you have yet to respond to that internal tug on your heart, I urge you to swipe right and say, yes, I want to be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now back to the courtroom. We see we are unrighteous. We are unreasonable. We are uninterested. And by nature, we are unrepentant. Look at what verse 12 says. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. MacArthur says that the Greek, uh, that this Greek verb was used for a group of soldiers who turned and fled in confusion in the midst of a battle and deserted. The whole human race has deserted the way of God. The whole human race has deserted the path of truth. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we've gone astray and every man has turned to his own way. And I've personally seen this too often. And friends of mine who were once professing Christians, I'm talking about people who were singing on the praise team, leading the praise team, who have now turned aside. They have abandoned trusting in the God who created the universe and now are now simply just trusting the universe. Some have abandoned the God who made them fearfully and wonderfully in their ethnic hue and now are believing that because of their ethnicity, they are themselves God. They have deserted God, gone astray, and turned their own way. But Paul says by nature, this is true of us all. He also says that we have become worthless. The Hebrew equivalent of of this word is used for milk that has gone sour and must be poured out or discarded. And I know it's hard to hear. I know it isn't feel-good preaching. But by nature, because we are under sin, we have deserted the way of God, become as useless as spoiled milk, and to make matters worse, by nature, we don't do any good. When Paul says here, no one does good, he is condemning our character. Now, most of us, uh, we strive to be men and women of good character, good moral people. But Paul says, nope, all you too have turned aside, become worthless, and does not do any good. He moves from our heinous, how, uh, heinous heart to our foul mouth in Verses 13 and 14, he says, our mouths are vile and venomous. In verse 13, he says, we're vile. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. He also says in verse 13, that is venomous. He says, the venom of asps are under (laughs) their lips, (laughs) and their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Here he quotes Psalm 5 and 9 that says, There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is, listen, (laughs) to Psalm 5 and 9. Sometimes the stuff I read in the Bible, I'm just like, oh, my God, did he just say that? There is nothing reliable in what they say. Listen, their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. He also quotes Psalm 140 and three, it says they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of ass. And finally, asps. <laughs> finally, in 10:7, he says uh, he quotes uh, Psalm 10:7, which says his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. After he talks about our bad character, he teaches about our bad conversation. Paul lets us know that we all have unholy halitosis and need a tic-tac of transformation. (laughs) He says our throats are vile like open graves. He points out, I was going to say stinky, but I got to say stanky right here. He points out how stanky, our speech is. Y'all ever met somebody that speech just stank and it wasn't just their breath? <laughs> he says, <laughs> an open grave reeks because what's inside it is dead, rotten, and decayed. Our speech and the things we say to each other are a direct reflection of what's in our hearts. Paul teaches in the epistles that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Internally we were dead, rotten, and decayed. One of the outward signs of this is what comes out of our mouths. The other day, y'all see I'm rocking my CLC uh, brand, you know what I'm saying? Getting it in for the culture. Uh, (laughs) The other day, we had a fundraiser, a a Sea Life Center fundraiser dinner, and it was really nice. People who were generous uh, They came and they gave from their good hearts. On that night, we raised over $13,000. Amen. Clap now because it ain't ending well. (laughs) We raised over $13,000 from some really good people. Well, after the dinner, one person who attended our event, went out to her car to find a note that had been written by another good person attending, uh, calling her all manner of foul names that I cannot repeat over the pulpit. I'll tell you later, though. I'm just kidding. (laughs) See, foul mouth, I told (laughs) y'all. This incident illustrates exactly what Paul is talking about. Many of us seem good outwardly. We even do good deeds. But in a final analysis, deep down in the inside of us is the rottenness and decay of sin. And as a result of our bad character, we have bad conversation. Jeremiah 17 and 9 says this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And listen, listen to the Bible. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? From the deceitful heart comes deceitful, deadly, vile, venomous speech. Look at what uh, Luke says uh, in, in, in the gospel according to Luke 6.45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Jesus brings it on home in Matthew 15, 17 through 19. He says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? That's an image for you. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile him. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, Slander, all the mean and nasty things we hear and say are because our hearts are mean and nasty. It seems like such a oversimplification uh, of the issue, but the problem with our mouths stems from the problems in our hearts. Paul says, "With our mouths we lie." He says, "Our tongue, with with our tongues we deceive." He says, "We spew poison, the venom of asps." It's of their tongues. We speak evil of people. Our mouth is full of curses, and we use hate speech against God and his people. Our mouths are full of bitterness. James 3, 68 says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil. Listen, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And is itself set on fire by hell. He goes on to say that all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. By nature, we have foul mouths. But Paul moves on. He's shown us our, our heinous hearts. He's shown us our foul mouths. And now he charges us with awful action. He moves from character to conversation and then to conduct to sup- and to support his argument. He quotes Isaiah 7, 9, their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. He says in 15 through 17, we have some awful actions. Now, I could elaborate on this, but I thought I'd do something a little different uh, and bring this in. Yesterday, my son and I went into the local convenience store to buy something to drink. As we walked in, the newspapers were sitting right there and there were two left. And this is, so I picked up the Sun-Times and here's what the headline read. Another American massacre. Ten killed, ten wounded at Santa Fe, Texas High School in the 22nd school shooting in the U.S. this year. Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity de- devastation and destruction are in these in their highways we ask how could something like this happen why did this happen. We debate it politically. We rail about it on social media. We even cry out to God like Habakkuk did asking, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never Prevails the wicked him in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. We may not like it, but the answer is right here in Romans three fifteen through seventeen. Our feet, feet, not feet, our feet are swift to shed blood. In our paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace we do not know. This happened and continues to happen because, quite simply, all are under sin. The reason why one person hates another person simply because of the color of their skin on every side is because all are under sin. The reason why we value political persuasion over personal relationships is because all are under sin. The reason why our world is in the shape that it's in today, people, is because we are all under sin. So here we are in the courtroom. Paul has given the indictments. We have a heinous heart, foul mouth, and awful actions. And he sums up his case in verse 18 with his clothing argument. He shows us what is behind it all. He gives us the motive, the reason behind the problems of our character, conversation, and conduct. He brings in his final piece of evidence, his last pearl, and he quotes Psalm 36 and 1. Transgression speaks... To the ungodly within his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. MacArthur says universally, men don't fear God. They do not honor God. They do not glorify him as God. Fearing God in Scripture is synonymous with being a true believer. Uh, Fearing God means, uh, uh, being a believer means you are a God-fearer. It describes that man or woman who has respect for God's holy person, work, word, and will. It describes the person who obeys, submits to, is in awe of, and reverences God. In the words of Tony Evans, and and this is just my personal working definition for what it means to fear God, Tony Evans says, is someone who takes God seriously. In verse 18, Paul shows us that all of humanity is derelict in their duty. We have neglected the chief thing. And what is the chief thing? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 in the KJV says it like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments For this is the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments. But yes, we are derelict in our duty. We have not, and if we are to tell the truth about it still today, we are not really taking God seriously. Each one of us must assess in our own lives, just how seriously we're taking God in our character, conversation, and conduct. We must ask ourselves when it comes to what's in our heart, when it comes to what comes out of our mouths, and what we do both publicly and privately, does it demonstrate our respect, awe, submission to, obedience to, and reverence of God? If it does not, then we must fall on our knees and repent to our holy God for not taking him seriously. So, then, with we'll Paul's closing statements, we, the defendants, stand in the courtroom just like Oliver Queen on Arrow, and we listen for the verdict. The verdict is the only one it could be, and that is guilty of all charges. The verdict we are guilty as charged. Verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Guilty as charged. We face sentencing. Verse 19 also says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And worst of all, we can't get off. Verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Picture it. The verdict has been rendered. The judge is preparing to slam his gavel on his desk. But then something happens in the courtroom. Suddenly, there's a plot twist. Let me tell you about the twist and arrow. At the end of episode 21 of Arrow, season 6, <laughs> entitled, Docket Number 11 after the verdict of guilty comes in, something happens. Oliver Queen's lawyer, standing next to the doomed defendant, says, Your Honor, the defense moves for judgment notwithstanding the verdict. That's a J-N-O-V. I had to look it up. A JNOV is a reversal of a jury's verdict by the trial judge when the judge believes there's no factual basis for the verdict. The judge will then enter a different verdict. You see, it turns out that the same person who had dropped down through the skylight dressed as the arrow placing Oliver Queen's guilt on himself had also taken the place of the judge. And although the testimony of Wild Dog had proven that Oliver Queen was guilty and although the jury had found Oliver Queen guilty of all charges the judge grants Queen a judgment notwithstanding the verdict and turns the jury's decision around removes the guilt and sets him free. I know I'm not supposed I'm supposed to leave y'all with a cliffhanger cuz my sermon was supposed to just be all bad. I was supposed to leave you with a a cliffhanger, but instead, I want to leave you with a sneak preview of what's to come next week, right? Spoiler alert, God does not leave us doomed because he knows about our heinous hearts, our foul mouths, our awful actions, and failure to uh, uh, fear him. He does something about it. The evidence of our hearts, our mouths, our actions, and our Outright lack of reverence for God has all pointed to the fact that we are guilty as charged. We have all perjured ourselves and lied under oath. And like Wild Dog did Oliver Queen, the law itself has outed us. The law has uncovered what's under the hoods and what's behind the masks we all wear. The law has proven that we are all arrow shooting violent vigilantes. But in the case of a holy God versus all of mankind, We have been found guilty of all charges, but God has granted us a judgment notwithstanding the verdict and declared us not guilty he's overturned the jury's decision and it's not because of anything we've done but because of what he's done. You may be asking well what did he do? I'm glad you asked. God sent Jesus through earth skylight in the form of sinful man and placed all of our guilt on him but that's not all. One dark Friday on a hill called Calvary they hung him high and stretched him wide on an old rugged cross. And as he hung there, something was happening. Because normally we stop right there. We just say, they hung him high. They stretched him wide. He hung him. For me, he died. But there was more than that going on on that old rugged cross. He who knew no sin was becoming sin for us. He who was guilty of nothing was taking our guilt upon himself and giving us his righteousness. The sinless was dying for the sinful. He was being sentenced so we could be set free. He was breaking the power of sin. He was setting us free from the dominion of sin. He was healing our heinous hearts. He was purifying our foul mouths. He was giving us the power to no longer commit awful acts. He was cleaning up our character, changing our conversation and correcting our conduct. He was rescuing us from God's wrath. So hang in there. Don't stop here. Keep coming. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is on the way.